public servants have an opportunity to recognize the, the history of Indigenous people in Canada and to build that knowledge and respect into the work that they do. Indigenous Perspectives. Indigenous Perspectives. Indigenous Perspectives. Stories from Indigenous Public Servants. Kansai. This is Indigenous Perspectives. A program where we hope to explore the experiences and perspectives of Indigenous public servants what reconciliation means to them, and what it can be for Canada. Look at any report, any study, any list ranking the countries of the world and their respective desirability, and you'll find Canada at or near the top. The International Civil Service Effectiveness Index, the Global Peace Index, the Social Progress Index, OECD's rankings of health, gender inequality, and social inequality, the Economist Intelligence Unit's Livability Ranking Report, Transparency International's Corruption Perceptions Index, even U.S. News and World Report has to give it up for Canada in their overall best countries ranking. And why not? We're geographically massive, resource-rich, economically and politically stable, we have universal health care, gun control, low crime, and a very good self-esteem. And yet, in spite of all that, or perhaps because of it, Canada is a dangerous place. Not for how the majority of us live, but how we think. When you're constantly bombarded with praise and accolades about how wondrous and prosperous your country is, and are never confronted with any evidence to the contrary, it's easy to become complacent and not even consider the possibility that the reports are wrong, or, in the very least, incomplete. Canadian journalist Terry Glavin asks us to think of prosperity differently, and that is to judge a society based on the state of its most disadvantaged citizens. For those citizens, Canada is a very dangerous place. He writes, Roughly a third of indigenous people are on welfare or some other form of income assistance. A mere 4% of Canadians are indigenous, but more than 23% of the inmate population in federal institutions are indigenous people an incarceration rate ten times higher than among non-Indigenous people. On reserves, 74% of schools are so dilapidated that they lack such basic amenities as drinking water. More than half the schools function without a library, a gymnasium, a science laboratory, or a kitchen. Of Canada's nearly 1.5 million Indigenous people, about half are under 15 years of age. Canadian journalist Scott Gilmore concurs. He writes, By almost every measurable indicator, the indigenous population in Canada is treated worse and lives with more hardship than the African-American population in the United States. 49% of First Nations members live on remote reserves. 
Those who do live in urban centers are mostly confined to a few cities in the prairies. How racial problems are literally over the horizon, out of sight and out of mind. And now, in their own words, the thoughts and feelings of some of Canada's own public servants on a completely open question. What is it about you, your community, or your culture that you want others to know? Is there anything you wish that your colleagues knew or understood better about you or about your culture? Well, I think it's happening. Um, if you had asked me this question three years ago, I might have you know, said, I wish that people, I wish some of the myths could be broken. I wish that the stories could be known around the cumulative effects on Indigenous nations across the country, whether it was the presence of, um, of an industrial or you know, commercial private company, a mining company. Uh, whether it was the impact, uh, the cumulative effects of, well, whatever, Alberta, you know, with, uh, with oil sands and et cetera. So I think it's been recognized and then the displacement of people into the reserve system and then the residential school and the 60 scoop and the lousy water and the education issues and that suicide rate and, you know, the list goes on. Those are not new. Absolutely not new. And yet there's a fair number of Canadians who are doing a double take when they hear these things. This past summer, I was part of a group that was consulted in the development of the Nuwate Chaudière Falls illumination, and some of our singers participated in the recordings that people heard there. We got to write what was presented on the placards on the site, which is telling our story through our language or through our our oral traditions, and not having non-Indigenous people tell our story or describe us. So those things are changing. And so three years ago, my question, my answer would have been different than today. We have survived 150 plus years of confederation and in, in so many cases have thrived, contributed to the country, contributed to culture, contributed to the economy. So uh, a lot of people would simply say, okay, reconciliation, fine. It's your move. People have been working without uh, official government support on reconciliation, on improving well-being, on strengthening communities. They've been doing it for years. We have been doing it for years. Ultimately, reconciliation comes down to whether Indigenous people in Canada can feel safe to be themselves wherever they are. And that sounds very simplistic, but it it catches a whole range of things. Obviously, it captures things like social conditions and and quality of programs and services in communities, uh, the recognition of of rights, the recognition of self-government, the recognition of land rights and so on for different communities, recognition of treaty rights. But for the many Indigenous people who live a largely, mostly, partly, sometimes urban life or a mixed life, like me, they have connections to a community, but they're mostly in a city, or if they're uh, moving between uh, 
one part of the country and the other, whether for work or for family or, or whatever it is. Accessing uh, services, you know, having a job, living a life in different parts of the country. Can they feel safe? There was a really devastating report that was done, I think it was done out of Toronto, called First People's Second Class Care, and it documented incidences where Indigenous people encountered racism while accessing healthcare. And there was also uh, a horrible story in, in uh, Winnipeg where an Indigenous man went to a, to a, an emergency room and uh, uh, the triage people basically thought that he was homeless and drunk and, and, and basically left him there. But he was an amputee. He had a catheter. He had an infection and he needed urgent attention. They left him there and he died in the ER. It was a long time ago. There was a series of inquiries around that. One thing I continuously say is we need to define Aboriginal or Indigenous continuously in policy development, program development, and that's reflective of defining First Nations Inuit Métis so that Inuit aren't always lumped into one Aboriginal umbrella. In terms of political accords, yes, there's an Inuit to Crown relationship, government to government relationship with Métis that they're moving towards, and as well as nation to nation with First Nations. So there's the political recognition of the three groups, but I find there could be improvements on how we define and track the usage of the term Aboriginal or Indigenous. It should always be be defined because I know I'm continuously providing definitions as to who Inuit are or where they reside because to me it, it almost seems easier for external or colleagues to just say Aboriginal Indigenous, they're all the same. They but in fact they have different cultures, different languages, different priorities, different solutions to address their priorities, different challenges different geographic areas. Nunavut is only accessible by air, for example. Um, there's 53 communities, Inuit communities in, in the country, covering 40% of Canada's landmass. So they're very different in terms of other Aboriginal groups. So that's one area of improvement that I'd really like to see in terms of the the definition, even the way we track um, Aboriginal employment statistics as a department, is under Aboriginal. It's not defined, and that's part of the Treasury Board guidelines or policies. So even tracking purposes, we're not in a position yet where we can fully track how many are Inuit, how many are First Nations or Métis. It's lumped into one. And I think that's a bit of a challenge um, when when we're always using the term one term to define all peoples. So I'm finding myself continuously educating, and and even in the short term, there's DG level EEX three. I think one one used to always use Aboriginal, but over the last since we've been working together over the last few months. He now defines Aboriginal continuously. So it does start from that level too and trickles down to all employees. So it's it's a complicated response because it's twofold, right? There's 
the perception that all Aboriginals are the same and then sometimes that perception isn't clearly defined in policy direction or program direction. So I think we just need to do a little bit of a better job on defining who these Aboriginal Indigenous peoples are. So my wish now is that people embrace the opportunity for dialogue and to take action. The reconciliation the commission called for, you know, Canadians to action, um, to to learn more, to connect. And I, I know I've seen that personally. I traveled with a group of paddlers between Kingston and, and Ottawa on the water, arriving in Ottawa on July 1st, uh, with the view, and I spoke to them all the way along the journey, with the view that we weren't celebrating 150 years of anything for us. We've, we've been here a long time, um, but we, we certainly recognize Canada's celebration. And that opened the conversation to a lot of people expressing deep, some of them were deeply affected by and troubled by hearing or learning of the truth. So when you get into truth and reconciliation, that, that's a two-way street. And I think that that now is presented to us and it's possible. So I think the opportunity, my, my wish is that people start talking more about it. And it's not from the position of people feeling necessarily, um, it's acknowledgement of the impact. And it's now our time and our culture to embrace that and to, to make, to take the steps we need to take to heal and move forward. But there's a few, few obstacles that still remain. But, you know, even the, even the Commission on Murdered and Missing, you know, Indigenous women and girls, I mean, those are, those are steps in the right direction. But there still will be a lot more work, and there's, there's still a lot of words and not a whole lot of action yet. I'm hoping and I'm hopeful that uh, the momentum won't be lost on that file. In my department, I'm doing okay here because I take the time to do informal sessions when I need to. I already know that when the new new staff come in, I am going to spend a few minutes with them to orient them more. I'm okay to do that. And I, I, I also review the documents relating to any, any of the inner files, so I have an input onto that. Well, you know what, I tell you, when it comes to Indigenous people, it's a very small community in Canada. Everybody knows everybody. So, uh, you know, when we look at our department, you know, it's one of the biggest departments, but yet every Aboriginal person knows everybody. And we know when somebody's new, we welcome them and we, you know, encourage them to come to to the different committees. We... um, and we bring them to the Kumik Lodge to make sure that they're connected with the elders and, you know, and they can have one-on-one meetings with the elders that they ever experience frustration. And, you know, I, I know m- many of the elders have been in the department for a long time, right across Canada, and one from the United States, or two of them from the United States. And um, so I talked to these elders and I asked them, you know, what's the most biggest issue that, that you always hear from the staff that, you, that come and see you? And they say they always complain about their managers. They always complain about 
people how they're uh, they're impacted negatively in the department, you know, for various reasons. But I feel really sad to hear that we have a lot of work to do still in terms of, you know, raising awareness, you know, about Indigenous people and their history and, uh, you know, why they are the way they are. And most of that is a result from Indian residential school intergenerational um, syndrome, I guess you can call it. So we all do know each other very well. We all know which nation we come from. We all know each other's differences. We all respect each other. We all have really good debates. I mean, we're, we're yelling, but we're, doesn't mean we're, we're, we're disrespecting each other, but we just need to make a point and we need to make it very strongly sometimes. But, you know, in the end, because we respect each other, we get even closer together because we know each other better now because we feel safe during our open debates to say whatever we want to say, but in a respectful way, following all of our seven traditional laws, which are very from nation to nation, but they're all basically the same. I mentioned being on that titling journey with 130 people. I was the only non, I was the only indigenous person there, and I was actually representing my chief and council because there was a request for that. And we left Kingston, which was not traditional Algonquin territory. And then when we hit um, Merrickville, I spoke to like 200 people and it was a standing ovation. And I talked about, you know, let's build the next 150 years. I mean, yes, it's important to recognize where we came from and the pain and the, and the gaps that need to be closed and the scars. But that's fine. Let's let's build the next 150 years. Those people throughout that week of paddling, many of them came to me, and some of them in tears, and some of them just wanted to say I'm sorry to somebody indigenous. I mean, I didn't feel that pain, but my ancestors did, and my grandparents. But I think giving people an opportunity to do what that person did is good. But I. It's also good to give your the employees of the organization the same opportunity to say or to declare they don't didn't know better or they'd like to know more or they'd like to feel they can do something positive and or understanding better through blanket ceremonies of history or or just having you know town halls and open discussions or myth busting sessions or whatever you know I get the tax question all the time and yes there are some tax but not income tax but yeah so I think it's great you know doing these sort of things um, they are helpful. And you don't want to make them too, too, you know, and keep it organic. It was a strange circumstance where I actually got into it a little bit with these uh, Indigenous scholars working uh, in a combination of academic settings or community settings, criticizing a couple of junior bureaucrats for tweeting out a picture of one of their brainstorming sessions. It was one of the Canada Beyond 150 groups who was working on reconciliation. These guys, they were, they were just getting together and, and, and brainstorming on, on what they need to do to learn about Indigenous issues so they can work on their project. So they had, they had done a, a, a post-it uh, brainstorm session and put their post-its up on the wall, and they took a picture of the post-its and tweeted them out. And there were basic questions about, okay, can we visit a, can we visit a community? Someone wrote a word, wrote the word reservation instead of reserve or First Nation or community. I guess they might have been American or kind of came from a, a background where they their exposure to Indigenous issues was more from an American bent. 
for those who don't know, in the United States, uh, people talk in terms of reservations more than uh, up, he up here in Canada, where we talk more in terms of communities or First Nations or any with traditional lands or Nunangat uh, or, or, what, or what have you. The nomenclature is a little bit different in the States. So someone used that language on one of the post-its who were, uh, happened. I, I don't know how it, they, it, it ended up in their feed, but they, they saw it and said, oh, my God, this is the, here's the Federal Public Service working on reconciliation in the year 2017. This is embarrassing. And they went on a thread and I said, guys, I basically said that these are kids in a training program talking about what they need to do to learn. Don't make them an example of, of everything that's wrong with the government of Canada. It's not really, they're, they're, you know, they're kids in a training session asking questions. And then they got into it with me a little bit because I was too forgiving and patient for them not, you know, you know, uh, showing their, uh, allowing their ignorance or not lack of knowledge about something to kind of sh to slip through. And this is this type of thing happens sometimes, and it actually can become a, a point of friction between this circles as far as people working within government, people working on the outside, and more of a an advocacy role or a, or a critical role of government. And it's totally understandable. I saw this firsthand with some of my mother's work. After working on the Royal Commission, she uh, worked on a number of projects uh, in, in education and in, in economic development with, with different uh, communities. And so she, was, she, she developed relationships on that way and also worked with government in more of an advocacy role. So she was on different sides of that equation at different points in her life and career. So it's not surprising to me. I really do wish there is a way to have those conversations in a healthier way. I, I ended off with them, said, look, if you have issues, raise them with them. You know, don't subtweet them. And the guy wrote back, said, oh, you're right. I won't subtweet them. I'll confront them. I, I, I don't know what happened. Hopefully, I think the guy might, might, might have followed up with them uh, on email or Twitter message or something. Hopefully something good comes out of it. Yeah, I think providing people the space to, to I think people should, you know, having the space to declare their ignorance of it, you know, and, I, and my wife is a great example of that, uh, who is now a, a proponent of it all, who now I hear responding to people's comments. She did not know all that she knows now and has learned and um, people are becoming much more aware. When our chief, I don't know if you watched the Great Cup game, um, but when he, you know, he welcomed people to our territory and then made the link between the Argonauts and Mississaugas and Calgary with the Blackfoot. Um, but the, I listened to the, um, the crowd response to his comment, and we could tell that people, when he announced who he was and where they were from, and he announced the territory, he got a positive cheer. Five years ago, I wouldn't. First of all, he wouldn't have been on the field, but it wouldn't have had, it wouldn't have made any difference, um, and it might even been greeted with booze. So you know, I think things are changing, and I think it's time for everyone to kind of say, okay, there's a reason for this. I have two kids, 24 and 18, so I was. The typical young Inuk mom, um, but very proud of it. 
And one thing that my daughter hears, because she's also a federal public servant, she hears a lot from her colleagues. And even when she was going to Carleton, hearing that back in the day, people were afraid to to declare or admit, quote-unquote, that they were Aboriginal or First Nations or Native. Eight, you know, maybe in some areas or even Métis, so that perception apparently still lays, lies in some of the First Nations in Métis being, I guess, afraid to declare their ancestry. But to me... And and I've always instilled it with my kids, even though they have a Hadlonak white Italian father, is that Inuit are very proud Canadians, and we've never hid the fact that we're Inuit. So my dad's Hadlonak as well, being born and raised in Nihaluit, I've always been Inuk first. So I can't always relate to others who say, I was ashamed or scared to admit I was Native or Aboriginal or First Nations or Métis. So that's one message that I'll share with you is that Inuit are a very proud people and for the most part, very willing to to work with, with all levels of government, all levels of organizations, very humble people, quiet one of the jokes we say, too, is for the Nunavut Land Claim Agreement, which was ratified in 1993, which happened to be the year my daughter was born, and then 1999, which happened to be the year my son was born. So I like to say I plan my pregnancies around the land claim agreement. <laughs> uh, my dad wasn't too happy about the first part, but anyways, <laughs> um, it's that we're very, like, even throughout the 30 years, it took 30 years to negotiate the ratification of the Nunavut Agreement, and it was done in good faith on the Inuit part. It took 30 years, but, you know, we're a patient people, we're a humble people, we're a proud people, despite some of the social indicators that are against us. It's very good to be Inuk, and I can never fully understand why people would want to hide that. I kind of understand, of course, like the perceptions, as I said earlier, that were there or looked down upon. And not to say Inuit didn't go through it, because Inuit were looked down upon, too, by government policies. But generally, at the end of the day, I'm really proud to say that it's it's always been good to be Inuk, and it continues to be good to be Inuk. I practice my Inukness at home, even if I'm far away from Nunavut. We get up there, my kids eat the raw meat, raw caribou, raw COIs, culture, family. So the proudness around the people from the four Inuit regions is very much alive. I think, uh, so what I might add, I think, um, so I dealt with science. I came from Burma, as you know, and um, so I was dealing with some of the science communities, and um, they um, even got the first clue about how to, to approach a community and yeah, et cetera. So and that's fine. That's just the way it is. But um, I think that 
thing that I can say that I observed the most is the um, sort of an ethnocentric assumption that everybody should work, everybody wants to work, everybody wants to have a job, nine to five, everybody. Um, so we kind of apply that kind of that work mentality to the to the culture, and it's not that it's wrong to apply that. I mean, I I followed that approach and taught my children to do the same. And now I live in the community, and I was meeting with some private sector organizations about establishing a partnership agreement with with them on certain projects that are occurring in the territory. And um, one of my colleagues, you know, when when asked about what we they, they, the, the company was committing to hire, you know, and and the answer we gave them was, well, let us know in what regard, but everyone who wants to work is working in our community. And I thought it was interesting because everyone who wants to work is working, and then there's the others who, for whatever reason, and there's a whole host, and then it's a microcosm of society there. But there are people who simply don't want to, and, and I think sometimes those stereotypes get either painted across the entire culture or not, depending on the upgrade. But I think as a public servant, it would be important to not over be overly, I guess, ethnocentric in the belief or view we aren't always right. And I think we have to step back and see things sometimes in gray because they're just not black or white. Those are things that are hard to swallow, right? So, so I think it's important, as I think with any culture, but to understand you're not necessarily right. And, um, and the sooner we recognize that and understand why we see things differently, the better. And that doesn't mean we can't find a common ground. It just means we're not the same. And that would be something I would hope that people kind of embrace. That's probably a rule for any kind of relationship. One last thought. It's something that I learned, just a little concrete example of something that I've learned as part of my um, support and participation in the Indigenous Employee Circle. It's the fact that I did not know why we changed from using Aboriginal to using Indigenous peoples. And sometimes in the government, there's often name changes, and it feels like the flavor of the month. Um, but in this case, I thought it was really important and something that I'd like to share and uh, hopefully inspire others to not only understand and use the proper terminology, but maybe join the committee as well, or if they have a committee in their own, their own departments, uh, simply because... You do learn a lot, and it does change your perspective and your approach to things. But I understood that the Aboriginal, when you break it down, the etymology of the word means not original. And in a sense, I can understand why that can be seen as very insulting to be not only called not originals, but to all be lumped up into this big generic lump of people without recognizing all the varieties that exist in, in the indigenous peoples. So looking at indigenous peoples, it's a more appropriate term because indigenous comes from the Latin word indigena, which means sprung from the land or native, which is more closely linked to original. And then peoples uh, really gives that opportunity to give a face and a style and a name to the variety of tribes that exist in each region. A very important and useful fact that you learn when you participate, and it does in fact change your speech and your commitment to avoiding accidental microaggressions and to um, 
being more careful from an inclusion and diversity perspective. I've never actually heard the term microaggressions before. Can you give me some examples of of how that enters into uh, our daily living? Microaggressions uh, is a term I learned recently because there was, a, from my understanding, an assistant deputy minister or someone that was going to do an armchair discussion on it. And I heard about it because I had brought up the example where um, I was asked if I was too diluted to participate in an ab- or indigenous development program. And so uh, I think other examples of microaggressions uh, are, for example, using the term Aboriginal instead of Indigenous, failing to acknowledge the land that you're on when you're doing a formal event, using terms like Indian giver, for example. Those are things that cause harm or can reasonably cause injury, even if you might not have meant it that way. So it's not a you know a direct aggression, but it is still, in, in a sense, an aggression on a, on a micro scale. It's something that's, that does not contribute to healing or reconciliation, but it, it contributes to um, causing a bit of harm in a way. Public servants have an opportunity to recognize the, the history of Indigenous people in Canada and to build that knowledge and respect into the work that they do. I am sitting on an advisory and like an executive Indigenous advisory council with the Canada School right now, developing the curriculum for folks like you, um, starting the deputies down. And what I really hope there is that people understand a, with a little greater comfort the Indigenous history, the Indigenous culture, and, you know, to some degree, the, the Indigenous way of thinking. Because I think that when we are shaping policies, when we're dealing with challenges of the daily work in any department, whether it's science-focused or social-focused or globally-focused or operationally-focused, that, you know, maybe adding a lens that they've learned through their teaching with Canada School or their interaction with Indigenous communities or culture, that they can apply some of those to the thinking. Because, there, I mean, there are differences. And um, I think there would be a, an advantage to um, having public servants all kind of take that approach into the way we deal with one another, internally or externally. But I think there's an opportunity there. So I, I think embrace the learning that and the, the teachings that are offered through the Canada School. Get to know communities, you know, across the board. I mean, not all public servants are sitting in the NCR, and I know that fully well. The regional footprint's quite large and, and spread out, and I think that um, it would be a, to everyone's advantage to uh, feel comfortable with the neighboring First Nation uh, communities uh, near the workplace. So if not, go find them. Um, and I think it'd be important to recognize how to, to, to become informed, to take that challenge, to become informed about the communities that they're dealing with. I always said, you know, seek first to uh, to understand and then to be understood. And I think understanding the environment around a public servant is, is important so that they can be understood whenever they're um, doing their job or that they can shape things in a better way for success. I also would hope that public servants at all levels, I wanted to adopt a motto of uh, you first when it came to the training on, on the Indigenous space you know, to suggest that an employee would not attend the training until their superior had, and, and that goes all the way up the line. Too often we've asked people to take um, required learning 
get the ticky box, but the managers or leaders at all levels of leadership don't go. And we unfortunately convince them and, and, and give people the responsibility to act when we are not able to support them because either those people haven't taken the training or they don't have the same understanding um, or it's not a priority. So I feel that it's important that, you know, everybody gets the same exposure. And uh, I think people can build that into learning plans. They can build it into their work plans and build it into their performance management plans on uh, how they achieve the training, the behaviors in support of, well, in the spirit of reconciliation. Indigenous Perspectives, Stories from Indigenous Public Servants, is a production of Employment and Social Development Canada. All opinions expressed on Indigenous Perspectives are strictly those of the individual and are not necessarily those of their employer. Public servants featured in this episode were Fanny Bernard, Don Bilodeau, Daniel Chate, Tunichuli Kutu Shirello, Pamela Capuena, and Lisi Nakatarvik. Our main title music is by Boogie the Beat, with additional music provided by Andrea Baroni and Greg Ryder. I'm Todd Lyons, host, writer, and technical producer for this series. Thank you for listening. Hey,